tradition of naming hurricanes initially emerged in the West Indies, and it was used to describe hurricanes based on the Saints' Day on which they occurred. So Hurricane Santa Ana, which hit Puerto Rico on July 26, 1825, was so named because that is the Santa Ana Saint Day. An Australian meteorologist named Clement Raig started using women's names to designate tropical storms and hurricanes near the end of the 19th century. And that convention was continued and made mainstream by the military during World War II, when they were doing a great deal of weather tracking, particularly in the Pacific. In 1953, the United States started naming storms alphabetically, starting with, for instance, Abel, Baker, Charlie, etc. That year, the U.S. also started using female names for storms, though that ended in 1978, when both male and female names were included in storm lists in the Pacific, and that bi-gendered approach propagated to the Atlantic and Gulf of Mexico the following year. For hurricanes that appear in the Atlantic... There's a list of names that's used for a full six years before being repeated. So you may hear the same name for a hurricane seven years after hearing it for the first time. Though if a hurricane is particularly deadly or destructive or memorable for some reason, that name may be retired permanently by the World Meteorological Association and replaced with something new. Hurricane Katrina, for instance, was replaced in 2005. And if we make it to the Ks in each of the coming years through 2021, the hurricanes will be named Katia, Kirk, Karen, Kyle, and Kate, respectively. The list we used this year, in 2016, will be repeated again in 2022. Interestingly, winter storms have also been named in the U.S. since the mid-1700s particularly in regard to historical storms that came through the area. Those names were derived from the day or month in which it took place, or in some cases from a noteworthy person who died, or a structure like a theater, or another prominent building that was torn apart as a result of the storm. These days, there's a significant amount of controversy over whether we should name winter storms at all. The pro-naming argument says that people are more likely to prepare for and stay informed about storms when they have a shorthand to describe and think about it. The anti-naming argument says that it's inaccurate to do so because winter storms can dissipate and reform in different places and at different strengths, so naming is a less straightforward endeavor than with hurricanes. For their part, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the National Weather Service in the U.S. have said they would not be naming winter storms, and they have encouraged other weather-related entities to do the same. That said, there is a lot of incentive for news networks to drum up attention using named storms, in the same way that slapping a brand on a shoe can increase the value perception of it. Slapping a name on a storm tends to get people talking and tuning in, which is a great way to attract ad dollars. If current trends continue, which is always a dangerous thing to presuppose, but if they do, it's looking like we will be retiring a larger and larger number of storm names each year. As the strength of these storms and the locations where they're taking place are shaking up a lot of what we thought we knew about the systems that shape them. What I want to talk about today isn't storms in particular, but rather the normal that we thought we knew, and the new normal that's replacing it that we are going to have to get used to, and ideally very quickly.
You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Let's Know Things is supported by its wonderful listeners. If you go to letsknowthings.com, you will see a list of different ways that you can support the show. Everything from contributing directly monetarily to sharing it with a friend or with your social media or leaving a review on iTunes or elsewhere. All of these things are very, very helpful and I appreciate them. This episode is also brought to you by HostGator. HostGator is my hosting company of choice, and if you go to HostGator.com LKT, you will receive a substantial discount on their wonderful collection of services. HostGator.com LKT. And this episode is also brought to you by Audible. If you go to AudibleTrial.com LKT, you can give their service a shot. If you are not yet sold on the audiobook thing, I highly recommend giving it a try. This is an excellent way to do it. You can see what their catalog consists of, get some substantial discounts on audiobooks, and you will also receive an audiobook of your choice from their catalog for free. That's audibletrial.com LKT. All right, let's get back to the show. The article that I want to start from today comes from Ars Technica, and the title of this article is Death Toll Rises After Thunderstorm Asthma Outbreak Strikes Australia. That is a fairly alarming headline, and it's a fairly alarming situation. There are at least four dead, hundreds have been hospitalized, and essentially what happened is Record amounts of pollen in the air became saturated by an immense amount of rainfall, and that pollen was then broken into pieces that are smaller and consequently more easily inhaled, and which can then get lodged deeper in a person's lungs and blown around a whole lot easier as well, getting into crevices that it wouldn't normally so easily get into. And the end result is people who suffer from allergies, and particularly asthma, suffering from more intense versions of what they would normally experience. And this story initially appears to be just one more instance of a kind of bizarro weather occurrence. And I guess in isolation, it is that. But when strung together with other similar stories, the tornadoes that have been appearing in Los Angeles and the nearly 124 degree Fahrenheit temperatures recorded in India, that's 51 degrees Celsius, the softball-sized hail that's been bombarding residents of Texas, they all add up to something a bit more significant. These weather episodes are disruptions to well-established patterns. That's why they're worth reporting on. That's why they are so bizarre. Yes, we have always had hail. And yes, we have always had tornadoes and hurricanes. But the hail is getting bigger and falling in places where it's never fallen before. The hurricanes are, on average, becoming far stronger and arriving at unusual times. The tornadoes are popping up in places where they should not be popping up, based on what we know about climate science. And it's easy to dismiss these news items as novelties, but that ignores the larger pattern that underlies them. The Earth's climate, it has a cycle, and that cycle changes periodically, but that change has a very ponderous pace. It goes incredibly slowly. And every reputable scientist agrees that, yeah, there are these cycles, and yeah, they move very slowly. And what we're seeing right now is unprecedented. It is a shift that is moving those cycles forward more quickly than they should be moving. And human actions are absolutely influencing that speed up and perhaps even causing aspects of that speed up of these natural cycles. Like with anything, there are a handful of scientists out of all the scientists on the planet who disagree with this, but I have yet to see a single one who wasn't on the payroll of a group that benefits from convincing people that this is not a human-made situation. 
and that all the other scientists, all the reputable scientists in the world, they're all liars and part of a global conspiracy to convince us that lizard men have not taken over our government and that global warming is a myth invented by the Chinese or by big refrigerator to sell us more ice cube trays. These scientists then are people who are either paid off or, or misconstruing information. I think it is important to continue to have a debate and to question these findings, but to completely dismiss the vast, vast majority of information and vast, vast majority of voices in this space because a few people disagree and might have some economic reasons for disagreeing, that to me is a misallocation of our attention and uh, misappropriation of legitimacy. So that said, how does this climate science thing work? I think most of us probably understand the fundamentals by now, but a concise summary of the reason our planet is the way that it is goes something like this. The average temperature on Earth, if it were open to the vacuum, you know, no atmosphere like on the moon, our average temperature would be something around zero degrees Fahrenheit, which is negative 18 degrees Celsius. But because of our atmosphere, the average temperature on Earth is more like 59 degrees Fahrenheit or 15 degrees Celsius. So what magic in the atmosphere makes this happen? Well, it's the magic of greenhouse gases. And under this header, wearing this label, you will find primarily water vapor, nitrous oxide, ozone, carbon dioxide, and methane. There are others, but these gases are the dominant players in Earth's atmosphere in this regard. These gases bear the moniker greenhouse gases because they cause a greenhouse effect. Picture a greenhouse full of plants, and it'll probably be a bit warmer in there than it is outside because the light comes in to the greenhouse, but only some of it escapes when it bounces off the stuff inside. And so more of the warmth that is contained within that light stays inside and less of it radiates back out. Whereas if there's no atmosphere on the planet or no greenhouse walls around those plants, then the majority of that light will actually reflect back out and not stick around in that area. So some of it does escape, but enough sticks around to keep us warmer than the space around us. And this is why we here on Earth live in a pocket of tolerable warmth in an otherwise typically frighteningly cold universe, that or stunningly hot if we're talking about the stars and similar bodies out there, but most of the universe that we can see and measure is actually incredibly ridiculously cold, and we happen to have this little pocket of livable space because of these gases. And so this is a, a lovely setup for life forms like human beings, and this is the situation in which we evolved with roughly this average temperature surrounded by plants and animals that also evolved in something roughly like it is today. The problem that we're running into now is that as a consequence of our kick-ass technology and production capabilities, we are pumping way more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere than have been there before. That is to say, there was maybe a time in Earth's history when it was like this as a consequence of seismic and volcanic activity or something like that, but we were sure as hell not around back then. And if there was life on the planet at that point, it would have been something far different from us with far different needs in terms of what, what it needs to live. Something that evolved under very different circumstances and something that would consider, say, furnace-like climates to be paradise. As we humans continue to put more greenhouse gases up into the atmosphere, like CO2 and methane, those gases then bounce more and more heat back at us, heat that would otherwise be reflected back out into the vacuum of space. And that increases our average temperature slowly but surely. The temperatures in which we've evolved then, the ones that we are acclimated to and that our biologies are customized for, have begun to shift. But before we get into that, you may be thinking, hang on, why is this an issue? 
isn't the planet just one big enclosed ecosystem? And isn't it true, then, that we cannot possibly derail nature because anything that exists within a closed ecosystem is already there, it's part of the system, and as a result, it's not a problem. I mean, it's not like we're importing carbon dioxide from asteroids yet and adding it to our atmospheric mixture. And so if these elements already exist here, then moving them around cannot be that big a deal. And if you were thinking that, you would have made a good point. We aren't adding anything new to the planetary system that doesn't already exist within it. And it's unfortunate that the issue of climate change is often and incorrectly bracketed in terms that imply we're creating something new that wasn't within the system before, when in reality, we are simply moving stuff around in vast quantities and to places where it shouldn't be, or it shouldn't be yet anyway, and not all at once. This cycle is a cycle like any other, and, and that means it moves at a given pace. What we are doing with our technology is extracting these gases from where they are stored, deep in the earth, under the ocean, tucked away in trees, and so on, and pumping them into the atmosphere all at once. If the planet was able to move along at its normal pace, it would be hundreds or thousands or millions of years before all that buried carbon would be reintroduced into the air, and it would probably do it a little bit at a time. And the consequences of that would not be such a big deal. That would be the normal plodding pace of this planetary cycle that Earth has. But to understand why speeding up that pace is a problem, imagine a restaurant with a few dozen tables and a handful of cooks. Now, imagine the cooks invent a time-saving mechanism that allows them to produce more food faster. Now, imagine that on top of that new system, they also invented some new tools that allow them to produce even faster, even more food within the same period of time. Because of these new advantages, the cooks in the kitchen have the capability to produce an obscene amount of food. But because of the nature of the restaurant, because there's only so many tables and so many consumers sitting at those tables, that food is only put to good use if it emerges as the patron's order, and not before. In the case of greenhouse gas production, what we've done from the Industrial Revolution forward is the equivalent of the cooks basically saying, screw it, and producing as much food as they're capable of, then continuing to work on their craft so that they're producing more and more food every day, despite the fact that there are not enough people at the tables to eat it all. And so this production cycle is only a problem if it gets knocked out of whack. And that's what's happened in our atmosphere. Typically, we have trees and algae and other quote-unquote customers eating up the food, the gases, at a regular enough pace to keep the climate moving at a steady clip. Because we've started moving faster in the back of the house, and because the front of the house has not changed in the same direction to accommodate that shift, we have a wild imbalance on our hands. And too much of the stuff that should be somewhere else, tucked away in the containers in the kitchen, tucked away underground and in the oceans and in all that biomass, is instead being served to the tables, to the atmosphere, that is already over capacity. Now, somewhat hearteningly, there's been some evidence from recent studies that show nature has adjusted a little bit as a result of our gaseous overabundance. Trees are soaking up more CO2 than they used to in the past, which is good, and this is likely part of why things are not worse than they are today. But all of the reports on this discovery make clear that hungrier trees are no match for the anthropomorphic CO2 production that we've got on our hands. We are still making far more than these trees can soak up, and that is increasing year over year. But let's loop back to the Australian thunderstorm asthma, which would be a great band name, by the way. Carbon dioxide is like food for plants. And if you increase the amount of CO2 that's in the atmosphere, you also increase the growth rate of many of the plants that eat it. At the same time, temperatures are on average rising globally and hugely 
in some regions. These, these temperatures are changing very quickly in some parts of the world. And this increases the growing season of these plants and even opens up completely new areas that were formerly too cold or barren to suddenly start growing allergen-producing fauna. And so these trees and grasses and flowers and fungi and everything else are beginning to grow in what were desolate spots around the world. A half a degree shift in the average temperature in a region can cause this kind of radical change. A full degree or a two degree shift could be absolutely devastating to the status quo. And another consequence of this shift that's happened already is that springtime, the season, spring, is in effect longer in many parts of the world. And this means an increase in the presence of blooms and fungal spores that can exacerbate existing or even trigger dormant allergy systems in the locals. And it also means that those symptoms will stick around for longer. Hence, thunderstorm asthma. As someone who's suffered from allergies my entire life, this is not good news to me. Growing up, before I started receiving two allergy shots every week, one in each arm, for something like five years, there were months out of every year during which I essentially had trouble functioning as a normal human being. My eyes would be swollen and itchy and sticky and red, and my nose was clogged when it wasn't drippy. My throat was sore for months at a time. Sometimes I would get hives all over my entire body, just from going outside, and then sometimes from being inside as well, because there's a lot of allergens everywhere you go. This is something that dramatically influenced the way that I developed as a person, and it's something that still impacts me to a much smaller degree today. For years, I was essentially allergy-free because of those allergy shots, which work a bit like vaccinations. The shots are really just small doses of what you're allergic to, and then over time, your body builds up an immunity. Today, though, I don't really need the news to tell me that something has changed in terms of allergen production. Because for several years, I have felt increasingly every year, my eyes start to grow puffy and red again, and my throat getting a little sore when the seasons shift. The pollen levels worldwide have been sky high, and pollen records are being broken seemingly every month all over the world. And the same is true of fungal spores and other natural allergens. This is a huge bummer for me, but it will likely also be a major wake-up call for other people who have never had allergies before. There's evidence that they are being newly triggered in some people by this shift, and in others, latent but low-level allergies are finally being noticed because the things that set them off are now reaching these incredible new high levels. These allergic responses aren't just being triggered by pollen and spores, though. There's still a lot that we don't know about allergies, but there is clear evidence that pollution, particularly the level of particulates in the air, can have a dramatic impact on respiratory issues, including allergies, within a population. There are already some incredibly obvious examples of this throughout the world, particularly in Asia, where if you look at major cities in India or in China, you will see just remarkable and devastating levels of pollution. In China, in Beijing, they tried to build a giant smog-sucking tower, basically, something that would clean the air and would clean a great deal of the air every day. And a recent piece in Quartz talks about how that tower essentially was no match for the level of air pollution in the city. The difference that it was making was barely registrable, and there's a good chance that it simply was not up to the task of that much pollution. So in addition to the macro-scale issues of water toxicity and poisons in the soil and waste working its way into systems where we do not want to have any waste, there are micro-scale issues that have become quite visible and deadly in a big way as a result of this rampant development that's occurring all over the world. When we talk about particulates, what we are talking about is atmospheric particulate matter. 
And that is a term for microscopic bits of solids or liquids suspended in the air. And it can be natural from like forest fires or volcanoes or even the water from sea spray, which is the most common particulate, makes up something like 80 or 90% of all the particulates in the air. But they can also be human-made, like the so-called inhalable coarse particles that are pumped into the air by coal power plants and car exhaust. So some particulates are natural, some are man-made, but simply being natural doesn't mean they're harmless. The particulates that result from fires, for instance, whether they're wildfires or campfires, are actually remarkably horrible for a person's health, even though we tend to think of the latter campfires as something quite natural and quaint and nostalgia-inducing. It's actually really, really bad for you to sit near a campfire. Many of these particulates, especially those referred to as PM10 and PM2.5, which refer to particulates between 10 and 2.5 micrometers in diameter, respectively, are quite harmful to humans and other living creatures. A heuristic to keep in mind when talking about particulates is that the smaller the particulate, the more damaging it can be. Because just like the pollen we talked about with the thunderstorm asthma, the smaller the particulate happens to be, the deeper into our system, including our lungs, it can work itself. So bigger particulates are not harmless, but they are more likely to be blocked by eyelashes and our internal membranes and things like that. Smaller particulates can flow right past these defenses into our systems and can sometimes even punch right through our lungs and other membranes. It's, it's really not a pleasant thing to think about because these things are everywhere. Particulates of this scale of PM10 and PM2.5 have been designated by the World Health Organization and the International Agency for Research on Cancer to be a group 1 carcinogen, which is the highest on the scale, and this means that they have plenty of evidence showing that it is indeed quite cancer-causing in humans. A study in 2013 showed that for every 10 micrograms per cubic inch of PM10 in the air, the rate of lung cancer for locals goes up by 22%. And for the same amount of PM2.5, the smaller ones, the rate of lung cancer is increased by 36%. So that in mind, a recent test conducted near that air filtration tower in Beijing that failed, or at least failed to do as well as they hoped it would, showed that in the area where it was cleaning, the PM2.5 concentration was measured at 89 micrograms per cubic meter within about 5 meters or 16 feet of the tower itself. So if the rate goes up for every 10 micrograms per cubic meter and the level within that range was 89 micrograms per cubic meter and it went up to 109 as soon as you got a few hundred feet away, then you can understand the size of this problem and the issues that are emerging as a result of it, particularly in cities like Beijing and other fast-growing, very populated, very industrious cities around the world. The WHO's maximum safe level, like the high end of what you want to have in a city for PM 2.5, is an average of 25 micrograms on average in an area over the course of a day. So 25 is the max that you want to have. 89 is the clean air version in Beijing. And 109 is the less clean version. It's not a pretty state of affairs. And you can see why people tend to wear masks while walking around those cities right now. But beyond just particulates, a lot of big cities, and particularly these massive quick growth hubs like Beijing, also have some other problems to worry about that are emerging as we learn more about what is taking place in the air. One such issue is addressed in a recent article on quartz, and it's entitled Antibiotic-Resistant Genes in Beijing's Smog Are Nothing to Worry About, Chinese Officials Say. And in this article, you can read about the studies that are showing that the smog in Beijing 
contains a huge number of antibiotic-resistant genes, which unto themselves are not anything to worry about. They are not active. They are not something that can have any impact on our immune system. But they could, at some point, be transferred to pathogens, which very much could have an impact on our immune system. And that transference is something that would be of immense concern, not just to China, but to the whole world. Because disturbingly, these metagenomes, which is a term that refers to free-flying genetic material that is gathered from the environment, these metagenomes also show immunities to carbapenems, which are kind of our last chance cures for infections that are antibiotic resistant. And so there's pieces of DNA in the environment that could be scooped up by pathogens in the environment that are immune to not just antibiotics, but also the medicines that we use to cure things that are immune to antibiotics. This is being played down by the Chinese media, and thankfully it hasn't proven to be an issue yet, but it absolutely could become one. And concern and some type of action, I think, is absolutely warranted. Respiratory illnesses and airborne pathogens suck, and they are real issues that warrant real action, but they aren't even the biggest or potentially most impactful issues at hand in this discussion. Plant and animal die-offs are an increasingly frequent occurrence these days. We are not the only species that depends on a very narrow range of climate to survive. I could probably go through and talk about almost every species on the planet in regard to this topic and the way that they're being impacted and changed as a result of this shift, but let's look at just a very focused example. Let's look at bees. There is a great episode of the science fiction show Black Mirror, which is really worth checking out if you haven't watched it. It's kind of horrifying, but also amazingly well-produced. But in this episode, all of the bees have died off, and we have replaced them with robotic bees. That episode goes in some wild directions and is more of a commentary on how we behave online in our online social spaces. But the core of the idea that leads to the plot of this episode is that if a common pollinating insect or other creature like bats were to die off, so would the entire food web in the area. And if the entire food web in the area died off, so would we. We are part of that food web. Make no mistake, if all of the bees were to die off, that would probably lead to a significant, if not the entire population of the human race dying off as well. Unless we came up with some kind of robotic bee replacement. And so as such, humanity does have a truly selfish reason above and beyond just not wanting to be assholes to all non-human life on the planet, to try to keep them alive and try to keep them healthy, to try to keep those food webs intact. Because it's not just being kind to animals and not just being kind to the cute little buzzing bees that should be guiding our actions here. There is also a purely selfish reason to want to keep these animals alive and to keep these things from going extinct. And that is that we are interconnected with them. And their well-being, in part, determines our well-being. And that's true not just for creatures on land, but also those that live underwater. There was a piece in the Washington Post recently entitled, What the Sixth Extinction Will Look Like in the Oceans. The Largest Species Die-Off First. And what this article talks about is something that has been of increasing concern, but kind of on the undercurrent of public conversation for several decades now. And that is that sharks, whales, giant clams, tuna, all of these creatures that are near or at the top of the oceanic food chain, they are dying off in droves. And what that seems to indicate is that there is an issue lower down on the food chain. They are not able to get enough food to sustain themselves because somewhere in that web of interconnected creatures, 
something is dying off, which causes something else to die off, which causes something else to die off, which then caused the whales to die off. Now, this is something that already happened on Earth before, at least once, that we know of, during a period that we refer to as the Late Quaternary Ice Age, which took place between 30,000 and 5,000 years ago. And during that period, our ancestors ate pretty much anything that was big enough to hunt. And consequently, most of the large land mammals disappeared completely. What's happening now is partially the result of something similar, things like overfishing. But that's really only an exacerbating factor to the main issue. And that main issue is that climate change and the secondary effects of climate change, like oceanic acidification, are killing off the lower rungs of the underwater food web. And it's the reverberations of this that are demolishing the larger sea creature populations in the same way that all the bees dying off would significantly reduce the human population. We would not have enough to feed ourselves and substantial portions of our population would starve to death. And those who survived probably wouldn't be having as many kids. I want to mention here, too, a period in time that is catchily named the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum, which I will refer to henceforth by its commonly used acronym, PETM. The PETM was an event that took place around 55 and a half million years ago, and it's of particular interest now because it provides scientists with a look at what could happen as a consequence of our rapid and dramatic atmospheric composition change-up. We are not certain what caused the shift that led to a huge influx in carbon into the atmosphere back then. Theories range from volcanoes to a comet to 90% of the world's biomass being set ablaze and burning at the same time. But we do know that global temperatures increased by 5 to 8 degrees Celsius over a relatively short period of time, less than 2,000 years. This increase in temperature, though seemingly humble, 5 to 8 degrees, led to dramatic planetary changes in life on the planet and on the geography of the planet. Oceanic anoxia, that is the lack of oxygen in portions of the ocean, became common, making large swaths of the underwater world completely unsuitable for life. Currents changed direction and size. The planet was without ice, no ice anywhere on the planet for 200,000 years. And the sea levels rose. Our understanding of the PETM, what caused it, what happened, is limited because, you know, 55 million years is a very long time, and the evidence that we have has all been filtered through the sieve of time. But it does present kind of a blueprint for what we can expect. And more than anything else, what that blueprint seems to indicate is that the only thing we can expect is change. And change will mean increases in sea level. It will mean mass die-offs and speciation, changes to species that we can't predict. It will also mean more firestorms and windstorms and dust storms, hurricanes and floods on scales that we've never seen before that we probably don't even have measurements for yet. And that's in addition to the other story that will be told about this shift. Our ecosystems and environment do not change in a vacuum. As they change, so does society change. We have cool technologies today, like desalination plants, but these are still very energy intensive for what we get out of them. And it is far more ideal to have sources of fresh water readily available without processing. Unfortunately, in the near future, these will be less and less accessible as the climate shifts. And so these adjustments to what resources are available and where will dramatically increase the chance of conflicts around the world. It will be wonderful, perhaps, in some ways, for people living in places like Siberia, because their currently iced over permafrost layered fields will become more capable of sustaining crops. But it will suck for the countries further south. 
whose economies and governments and societies came of age under more favorable climate conditions. And that means that in order to keep things going at that pace and at that rate and on that scale, and in order to keep their people happy and fed, many governments in these regions will seek justification, any justification, for taking resources that are not theirs. Or failing that, will be forced into deals that are wildly against their interests. The consequences of this will be many. I think a full-scale dive into that would take an entire separate episode. But one thing that seems certain, and something that we're seeing already, is that this unpredictability, the fact that things are changing wildly all over the place, constantly these days, will probably result in a rise of authoritarianism. And this authoritarianism will probably not be a passing trend without some major changes in the way that we deal with each other, governmentally and intergovernmentally. When things are less predictable and more scary-seeming, and when there's more information available than there are people who can parse it or who are willing to parse it, a lot of people who typically value things like freedom will be more than willing to give it up in exchange for perceived security. As I mentioned in a previous podcast, there is a lot going on around this issue of climate change that we are not really talking about. And we aren't really talking about it because doing so honestly and with all the facts on the table could conceivably leave us with worse consequences than if we actually rallied behind an ultimately unattainable goal. One thing that we are not saying clearly is that chances are we cannot stop this change, this slow-moving disaster. Even if we all stopped using fossil fuels everywhere on the planet today, chances are the damage is already done. And we are going to have to live with that, whatever the consequences might be. The point where we're at now, though, if we really do have this conversation and decide to take action, is a point where we get to decide how quickly these changes that are coming will actually take place, and how dramatic the changes actually end up being. By any measure, having 40% of all non-human species die off would be a planetary disaster. No question about it. But... 40% sure beats 80% dying off, or 100%. A few inches of sea level increase would be devastating to many coastal areas, and it would lead to massive relocations around the world. Think about the current refugee crisis, and then imagine that, but on a massively larger scale, a hundred or a thousand times what it is today. That is what we can probably expect in the coming decades, unfortunately. And so a few inches would absolutely suck, and it will cause massive relocations. But it is way better than having a sea level rise of a few feet, or five feet, or ten. And so you could look at the best, newest information out there and come to the conclusion that we have lost this particular battle. And in a lot of ways, you would be right, frankly. But we still have a chance to lose on our terms, and to lose in such a way that society actually becomes stronger as a consequence of that loss, and so that the overall impact is thousands of times more tame than it could have been had we not continued to struggle to the last. That said, recognizing and acknowledging that this is not an impending temporary condition, but rather a new normal that is already in a lot of ways here. That's important. And it's important that we allow that knowledge to impact the actions that we take, the decisions that we make, our mental model of how the world operates. It's a perspective that is worth considering anytime we make any kind of decision, particularly those that reverberate into the future. What kind of work do you want to be doing 10 years from now? What kind of relationships do you want to have in your life? 
on a larger scale, what kind of society would you like to live in? Where do you want your power and food to come from? What might be most ideal for a world in which everything has changed and in which there's more conflict than ever before and in which global trade relationships have been bruised and water levels have risen and mass die-offs of perhaps integral species have occurred? To put it another way, it's not enough to simply report on instances of thunderstorm asthma as a bizarre one-off that occurred somewhere we don't live. Thunderstorm asthma is just one relatively tame example of the new unexpected issues that we're going to have to learn to deal with on a regular basis. If you think that ecological disasters and the resulting die-offs and political conflicts and economic issues are temporary conditions that we're dealing with now but won't have to worry about in the future, you should probably think again. The new normal is, in a lot of ways, the same as the old normal, which is to say it's not static, it's ever-changing. Those changes are just sped up a bit now because of how fast information travels, how many connections we have tethering everyone to everyone else, because of the technological might of the planet's dominant species, that's us, and because of the way we consume and produce and influence the world around us, both natural and social. Like most things that seem to be just absolutely horrible, there is a chance to do some really good things in the current and coming flux period. To do so will require an understanding of how things are shifting, in what direction, and on top of that, where you would actually like them to shift next. But unfortunately, these are not changes that will disappear if we close our eyes and tell ourselves that they're not real. These are problems that are wranglable if we choose to be the people who take responsibility for what happens next. But taking that kind of responsibility will require a great deal of change of a different kind. Change within the imaginary world that we've built as a species, that collective hallucination we call society, that we call civilization. These are the things that determine how we leverage our powers, our inventions, our tools, our systems to ameliorate the worst of the damage and save what we can and build something more stable, something more resilient moving forward. Let's Know Things is brought to you by its wonderful listeners. If you go to letsknowthings.com, you will see a list of different options that you have if you wish to contribute to the continued production of the show. You can contribute a sum of money. You can set up a monthly payment if you care to. You can go to iTunes and leave a review. You can share the show with your friends, with your relatives. There are lots of different ways to contribute if you are enjoying what you hear. A great big thanks to everyone who has already contributed in some way. I very much appreciate it. And a thank you in advance for anyone who is considering doing so. I appreciate you listening either way. This episode was also brought to you by HostGator. HostGator is the hosting company that I have gleefully used for many, many years. They have excellent products, excellent customer service. They are the company that I've used to host my blog and my portfolio and everything else that I've done online. They have been the underpinning of that. And if you go to hostgator.com LKT, you will receive a substantial discount off of their already reasonable prices. If you are thinking of starting your own portfolio, your own blog, building a website for your business, this is a great opportunity to do so with a wonderful company at a substantially discounted rate hostgator.com slash LKT. And this episode is also brought to you by Audible. I am hooked on audiobooks. I am particularly hooked on nonfiction, listening to audiobooks when I go for walks or when I'm cooking. It really plays in well with other aspects of my lifestyle. And Audible has the by far biggest collection of audiobooks in the world, something like a few hundred thousand in their catalog. And their app is a pleasure to use, and they are offering you the opportunity, person who has not used them before, to get a free trial 
All you have to do is go to audibletrial.com LKT, and you will receive a free month of Audible and an audiobook of your choice from their catalog that you may keep whether or not you end up sticking with them past that free month. You may already have a book in mind to spend that credit on, but if you do not, might I recommend the novel The Water Knife by Paolo Bacigalupi. This is an excellent work by an excellent author, and it's quite relevant to the topic here, actually. It is a story that takes place in an extreme scarcity scenario. It takes place predominantly in Phoenix, Arizona, in the United States, in a world post-drought where the water cycles have been messed with. There's not a lot of clean water to be had anywhere. And consequently, the politics around water become very interesting. And so-called water knives are people who go around and turn off water to certain areas to essentially kill them if they do not play ball with the people who are in power. This is a world in which the rich are building completely enclosed ecosystems. These habitats are kind of the equivalent of suburbs, except they're great big towers that have enclosed water cycles. And they're doing this while the rest of the world around them succumbs to extreme drought. I won't tell you anything more than that. I don't want to ruin the story, but the setting itself, I think, is interesting enough. And Bacigalupi is an author who has written a bunch of really wonderful kind of near-future science fiction, and it's a really interesting look at the way politics hopefully won't, but could develop if things get really crazy in terms of our, our own water cycle and the availability of clean water. So that's The Water Knife by Paolo Bacigalupi. Great book you can spend that Audible credit on if you care to, or you can find it at your local library your local indie bookstore, on your Kindle, on Kobo, wherever is most convenient for you. You can find the show notes for this episode and every episode at letsnotethings.com. There you can also sign up for the weekly newsletter, which is just a collection of links to interesting things that you will receive every Monday for free. You can find Let's Note Things on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Let's Know Things. You can find me, Colin, personally, on all the social networks, pretty much, at Colin is my name. You can find my blog at xllifestyle.com, the complete list of books that I have written at colin.io. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.